quick introduction. Okay, wonderful. So welcome back everyone, or welcome to those who are joining for the first time. Uh, this is our final session on our class, uh, of our class on meaning uh, heretics uh, with Dr. Barash Sigal. Um, as a reminder to those joining us here on Zoom, I will send you an invitation to become a panelist that does not obligate you to do anything. It just lets you into the room so you can share your camera if you want to, if you're able to, we understand uh, life happens. Um, and you'll be able to mute and unmute yourself to ask questions uh, when we have time for discussion. Otherwise, you're welcome to put questions and comments in the chat here. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can put your questions and comments in the comments section directly below the video, and I'll take a peek so we make sure that you can be part of the conversation too. Uh, but without any further ado, uh, please, let's get started. Hi. So, hi everyone, and welcome to our third and last uh, lecture in this lecture series about uh, heretic stories and renamed stories in uh, Babylonia and Talmud. Um, just a few words before we get going is that the, the lecture is not dependent on the first few, first two. If you're joining us just for this one, that's fine too. Uh, each lecture stands on its own, but I highly recommend you going through the other two um, lectures as well because they give like a broader picture and just to uh, summarize what we did in the first lecture is talk about um, uh, uh, heresy and Christianity in the East and in the West and in and, and, and general just talking about um, insults and what does it mean to call someone a heretic and what does it feel to call someone a fool? Uh, what does it mean to call someone, uh, we talked a few insults in the, uh, in the second temple period we talked about blind fools, we talked about hypocrites, we talked about dolshia chalakot, but uh, this is all relevant to the genre of literature that we're dealing with, which is, which is uh, a genre of literature that deals with uh, discussing with the other or discussing with a group that we uh, uh, use name calling. So that was the first discussion. And the second was actually uh, going in and, and exploring a, a story. And today we'll explore a second story of, uh, of that genre of literature of minim stories in Babylon and Talmud, where a rabbinic figure talks to a, what uh, it's called a meme or a heretic. Uh, we did one last week uh, and, and from uh, Tractate Yevamot that talked about the taking off of the shoe, the Khalifa ceremony and uh, the story. And today we'll do another one, uh, this time featuring, I always, when I talk about uh, the heretic stories in Babylon and Talmud, they use the phrase, uh, the rabbinic figure uh, instead of a rabbi because within the corpus of meaning stories or heretic stories, we have one story that's not about a rabbi, but actually about a woman, a female uh, character named Buya. And so that you know, allows me to say that the uh, Minim stories are uh, interactions between Minim and uh, rabbinical figures and not rabbis. So this is, she's the excuse. And this is the story I chose for today, uh, which is a story about uh, Buya talking to a heretic. So let's start with uh, our... Hmm, our screen, let's see. So can you tell me if you are seeing this? Are you seeing my screen, Saul? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, you're, my, you're my open um, participant, so I can see your face, which is very nice. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I can see if you're laughing at my jokes or not. Oh, there we go. Oh, definitely, I haven't seen you in years. It's very nice to see you. 
Uh, um, I like when, when I see people uh, find my jokes funny or not. So that, that's nice of you both for uh, allowing me to see if I'm funny or not. <clears throat> but in any case, we are here at the, uh, really the, the, the last talk. And, and today I want to explore that story with Buya. But uh, before we begin, just a quick reminder that uh, what I'm teaching you is based on my second book, which is featured here. It's called Jewish Christian Dialogues and Scripture in Antiquity, Heretics Narratives of a Babylonian Talmud. Um, that was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press, and uh, it just came out in paperback actually just a few months ago. So um, price has dropped, so that's nice. Uh, and also, uh, um, it really um, the what I've been teaching you here uh, is uh, part of what you will find in the book, which really explores some of the heretic uh, stories in the Talmud. But as, just to remind you in a general rule, when we're talking about minim, uh, mean in singular and minim in plural, uh, literally means a her heretic. The question is, what does it mean when you call someone a heretic? And we've discussed this at length. Uh, basically, the assumption is that it means a few different mm -hmm. things, uh, depending on content and a context. So this is what we'll, get, we'll do. Sometimes we have a Greco-Roman religion, Gnostics, Samaritans. And so different layers of rabbinic literature preserve different layers of the meaning of the term uh, minim. So this is our story for today, and it's found in Tractate Brachot. Uh, and uh, this is one of the, in, in page 10, uh, uh, and this is the story that we're gonna deal with today. Yeah. So, I'm reading, okay, so I'm reading this according to the printed edition, and we'll see um, later on how, what's the difference that use of manuscripts does for this story. Uh, so the story goes like this, right? a certain mean or heretic said to Buya. Now who's Buya? Buya is a female figure. We know from the story that she's a wife of a famous Tana, uh, a sage that lived uh, during the time of the Mishnah, right? Uh, but interestingly enough, she's extremely unique in the fact that uh, she and someone else named Yalta are the only two female characters we have by name, first of all, because usually women do not get to have names in rabbinic culture. They're the wife of, or the daughter of, or even a matrona, right? A, 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 Roman, a Roman woman. But here she actually has a name. Her name is Buya. And what's interesting about Buya is that she's depicted as someone who's learned. And that's interesting and unique and not found at all often literature, so that's a character that really um, finds a special attention in the Babylonian Talmud by, by, by her sheer unique um, characters. So here we have a, a dialogue between Amina and Yurtik and this female <clears throat> fact, you know, character named Boya. And this heretic says to Boya, and this is again the, uh, we talked about this last week, there's a literary structure to these stories, the ones that I'm dealing with in my book. Not all many stories, but this group of stories where a heretic would come in, ask a question of the rabbinic figure, a question about a biblical verse, and then the rabbinic, uh, rabbinic figure would answer using the insult fool. And at first glance, the, 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 the question seems easily refutable and even foolish. And uh, and indeed, when the rabbinic figure answers that question, he uses the insult full, meaning it looks easy to refute. And indeed, the refutation is there. And that's usually most of the story, very short and enigmatic. 
my uh, attempt in these classes, and as I will do today, is to show you that the story looks um, foolish or easily refutable because we're missing um, knowledge of contemporaneous Christian beliefs, which actually uh, uh, make clear what's the purpose of these stories. So that's the general, you know, the general uh, theory. Now let's put it to the test. So a heretic comes and talks to Guya. And he says to her, and he asks the question about a biblical verse, and he says, He says, it says in Isaiah, and that's a verse we'll talk about and we'll stand, stand in the center of our conversation today. It says, rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, O barren one, one who bore no child. So the verse says, rejoice, O barren one, because you bore no children, or the one that did not bear any children. Now the heretic asks, because she's a barren, she is to rejoice. Can we show the Why should anyone rejoice in not having any children? Says the heretic. Theoretically, a good question, right? Why would the verse say that uh, Akara, someone who bore no children, should be happy? But then Guri answers to him and says, Shote, that's our, the insult that we were talking about, right? She calls him a fool. She says, fool, read to the end of the verse. You stopped, you know, with the critical part of the verse because the verse, the verse, the rest of the verse will explain why the verse is calling on the barren woman to be to rejoice, to be happy. Why? Because the end of the verse says, because many are the sons of the desolate woman more than the children for the children. Let me read from the translation. For the children of the desolate are more than the children of their sons. That's the rest of the verse. So the verse makes complete sense if you read the whole thing through, right? Rejoice, O barren who are no children, because the children of the desolate are more than the children of the spouse. The, the verse explains why would this woman be happy. So let's stop here for a second and talk about the question that the heretic asks. What is this question? Right? It's a foolish question, just like Bulia excuses him. She says, What is this? You know, you can't stop a verse in the middle. Right, just have to resource it and say, oh, it doesn't make any sense before you read until the end of the verse and the end of the sentence that explains why. So we understand Bowie's answer. My question to us is why would anyone write a story like that? Right? Why would anyone make up a story where a heretic comes in and says, Oh, this makes absolutely no sense because I stopped in the middle, right? And this is this is why would anyone write such a story? And more importantly, why would anyone think it's important enough to keep it in the Talmud for us in Drisha in 2022 to read it? Someone wrote this foolish story. Someone thought it was important enough, a story about someone reading the verse halfway and then someone telling him, you fool, you need to read all the way through. Someone thought that this was important enough to keep in the Talmud. And again, we in 2022, are reading this, what's happening? Now, there's a very famous book uh, written in the beginning of the 20th century, to, uh, 
by a, a guy named Hereford. He, he collected all of the heretic stories. And when you read him, like, going over these stories, he's very annoyed at the, so that's a stupid heretics. And that's, a, he, he's very, like, you know, this is how he goes through the stories. And he was happy and content with the fact that the Talmud has foolish stories. I am less convinced. I think uh, the reason that it looks foolish to us and uncomprehensible is because we're missing a piece of the puzzle. It looks odd to us because we don't, we're missing something, right? We're missing what the story is really about. And for us to know what the story is really about, we need to know Christian contemporary uh, literature. And that's my, so this, again, very weird story. But the story doesn't end here, right? So he asks the question and he says, why should a barren woman be happy? And she says to him, read until the end of the verse. And the end of the verse makes explicit why she should be happy, right? Because the children of the desolate are more than the children of the spell. But then Boya said one more sentence. And Boya said, Ella, Roni Knesset Israel, Shedomali Shakara, Shelo Yalda Banim Legenum. She says to him, you know what? Not only do you need to read until the end, let me say one more thing about this. What is the meaning of rejoice or barren one? Rejoice the congregation of Israel who resemble a barren woman for not having more children like you for Gehenom. There's a, a meme that circulates on Facebook and Twitter that's like that escalated quickly, right? This is how did we get to Gehenom all of a sudden, right? So he asked, and we started with a meme asking a foolish question about a verse where he stops in the middle and she says to him, read until the end. And now all of a sudden we're in this situation where she says to him, you know what? Not only do you read until the end, who is the barren woman? She's Israel. And she is like the barren woman. She's, she should be really happy for not having kids like you because you're going to end up getting old. What did he do? Why is she saying that to him? He just read the verse until the middle. Why would she get upset with him? What's happening here? So in fact, what I'm trying to suggest is that the story that has a two-part answer, right? The first answer is just reaching the end of the verse. And the second that has such a the second answer has such a harsh polemical tone is an indication that something else is happening here, right? It's not just why would a Talmud keep such a story? It's even stronger than that. Why would it have the second answer? Why would it have that very harsh tone of you are uh, a fool? You are uh, uh, someone who is destined for Gehenom and you know, someone who didn't bore you as a mother should rejoice because you as a son, you know, is, is, is not having you. You should rejoice by not having people like you because you're so evil, you'll end up in Gehenom. So I think this gives us, you know, a clue to why this story is actually, in fact, probably something a little different than what we think. It probably has and, and, and represents something that we're missing. And as I usually say in these in, in cases, is that the basic for every argument with a heretic, as I said, is the biblical verse, right? This is Shekhshela verse, right? Look for the verse. What are they arguing about? And they're arguing about a verse that's found in, uh, in Isaiah, 
and this is Isaiah 54.1, and that's the verse we're talking about. So the verse says, Roni akara lo yelada, pitzchi rina v'tali lo chala, ki rabim nesham amar ibnei be'ula amar adat. So that's the verse in its entirety, right? So Kishi says, I'm read all the way to the end. So rejoice, O barren one who born a child, burst into song, right? Pitzchi rina, and shout, it's tahali, you have not been in labor. So the, that who, you know, that's a piazu that repeats itself. You who did not bore any children. Why? For the children of the desolate, right? Are more than the children of the espoused. Says the Lord. Right? This is the, the, this is the verse that we're talking about. Now, what's happening with this verse? And, and, and my, my argument basically is that in order to understand this story and, and, and what it means, I basically uh, want to talk about a three, the three um, adjectives that appear in this verse and talk a little bit about that and explain the difficulty we have in this verse. So the verse is chiasmic, right? It, it has uh, uh, parts that are um, uh, are parallel to one another, right? So we have rejoice, rejoice, obey in woman who born a child. And then the parallel to that is burst into song and shout, you who have not been a neighbor, right? That's, you know, again, so rejoice is parallel to burst into song and shout, barren woman who has not been a, a, a born or a child, right? So this is this is the parallel between the two parts, right? Now, the problem with that is that when it's parallel, it's not exactly parallel in the adjective it uses, right? They're not. If it's you know, it's if it's it's parallel, it's and also it's one against the other. Then let's look. Let's let's look at the adjective that the verse uses. So we have akara, literally means a barren. We have shomema, translated as desolate. And we have the word beula, which as you can see is slash because I'm having a hard time translating and that will stand in the heart of our uh, not talk for today. But those three adjectives used to describe the woman are actually not opposite to one another and not exact parallels, right? Because akara means someone who is barren and it should be the opposite, right? So barren one, as opposed to akara, right? It, it's the opposite of be'ula, right? So you should rejoice the barren one, rovni akara, ki rabim bnei shomema. So akara and shomema are parallels, right? The desolate and the barren one are parallels. They're supposed to mean the same. They're not really mean the same, right? Desolate can mean other things as well. And akara means something else. And the opposite of it, right? The children of the be'ula, should represent the opposite of both Akara and Shomema. But they're not really in opposition, right? They're similar. We can see the semantic field in which it will be true, creating this verse, but they're not exactly the opposite and they're not exactly parallel. Right? So we have three. The two of them should be parallel and one should be in opposition, but they're not really so. Now, why is this important? Why did I stop and talk about this? Because now we're going to talk about the history of interpretation of this verse. And I want to Go on a little tour of uh, Second Temple uh, uh, and, and, and early rabbinic literature interpretation of this verse in order to try and understand what's happening in the Babylonian Talmud and try to understand what's really happening behind the argument and the discussion around this verse. 
In order to understand that, I want to talk about how this verse was interpreted in ancient times, right? In late antiquity and that time period where uh, people read this verse and what occupied their minds. So this, the, the question of the adjective of this verse is important for the history of interpretation. So, because what happened is, every time an interpreter looked at this verse and tried to translate it or interpret it, it would pick one of the three and move from that one to explain the whole thing, right? So because when you're looking at the verse, right, you have to ask a few questions. The first is the verse talking about one entity or two. When it talks about rejoice the barren one who had no children, because, at the, at, because there will be more of the desolate than the birulacho, right? Now, are we talking about two different women? One who's desolate and one who's beula? Or are we talking about the same woman in two different phases of history? Right? So that's a question that interpreted will, will ask, right? Is this verse, when it talks about, I don't know, the future, when it's a metaphor for something, is it a metaphor about one entity that will go through two phases, in one in which she's barren and then in the other one she'll have more children? Or is it two different entities? one who remains without children and one who will have children at the end, right? So there's one entity or two. That's something that the early interpreters know. Second is, is she should, should she rejoice for the current state in which she's bearing or should she rejoice because in the future she'll have more children? Should she stop and say, at this moment, I should rejoice in my barrenness or is it I should rejoice because in the future, even though I'm barren now, I'll rejoice in the future? So that's another thing that bothered ancient interpreters. And lastly, and again, in order to answer those questions and interpret this verse, what's the crux, right? What's the what's the the, the biblical verse on upon which to hang the interpretation of the verse and to understand the whole verse? So which of the three, and we just check, which one is going to be the one that's going to determine the meaning of the verse? Now, let me give you some examples. So let's start with the Targum Yotan. This is one of the, tran the translation of the, uh, um, of, the, uh, uh, of the Bible into Aramaic. This is the Targum Yotan. And look at what it says. This is not the Targumim. This is a genera, literary genre that moves from very uh, literary uh, yeah, interpretation, uh, sorry, translation of, of the verses, meaning really, really close to its meaning. And sometimes the Talgums goes all the way to flourishing the biblical verses with a lot of like Madrashic interpretation. So it depends on which Talgum you're reading, but look what Talgum Yonatan does. It's not very literal in this case. It says, Shavichi Yerushalayim, right? Sing O Jerusalem. This is how we translate this verse. Who was like a barren woman that beareth not. Rejoice with praise and be glad who was like a woman that could be not, for more shall be the children of a Jerusalem that was laid desolate and the son of the inhabitants of Rome, said the Lord. Okay, so what does Tagum Yonatan does? He looks at the verse from Isaiah and he says, okay, we're talking about two different entities. We're comparing between Jerusalem and Rome. And we're talking about Jerusalem as being desolate and we're talking about Rome having a lot of children and the verse says talks to Jerusalem and says to Jerusalem you should be happy now that you don't have as many children as Rome 
Because at the end of the day, you'll have more children than the people of Rome. Now, what's the word that Targumianatan finds as the hook for this for this interpretation? Obviously, it's the word sedita, right? It's the word desolate, because that allows me to say, oh, who is desolate? When we're talking about desolate, who's the word that desolate? Desolate is Jerusalem, because it's ruined, right? So the Romans ruined Jer Jerusalem. So let's start with that. Let's start with desolate and then interpret the whole verse according to that. So desolate is Jerusalem, not desolate, meaning someone who has a lot of children. The Beula is Rome, the opposite of desolate, right? Rome is flourishing, it has a lot of children. That's the Beula. And, and so Jerusalem is the barren one who's not as desolate as the ruined Jerusalem. So that's just an example to show when Targum Yonatan, one of the interpreters uh, the, during uh, late antiquity, one of the interpreters of the verses, when he looks at the verse, asks this question, one did today or one, is it in the same time period or about the future? And what's the verse, the, what's the biblical verse that is used to explain the whole verse? So this is one example, for example. Let's look at another interpreter of ancient antiquity, and this time Philo. So Philo was uh, a Jew that lived in, in, in Egypt around the year zero. And Philo talks about uh, rewards and punishments. And Philo likes to do allegorical interpretations. And he looks at this verse and he goes to allegorical interpretations. The first one, which we'll not read, is about. Um, takes the word desolate and talks about the land, the land, the actual land of Israel, which had to go to the year of Shemitah, the year of uh, the seventh year where the, the, the land has to rest and uses that as an interpretation. We're not going to go into that, but then he goes into a allegorical interpretation of this verse. And he says this, this verse talks about the soul, says Philo, the soul, why about the soul? And then he explains. For when the family is very large, let's see if you can see my pointer. Sorry, let's do this. Nope. Can you see my pointer? Do you see a red pointer? Good. For when the family is very large and the soul is full, all kinds of passions and vices surrounding it, like so many children, such for instance as pleasures, appetites, folly, and temperament, injustice, it is sad and diseased. And being exceedingly prostrate through illness, it is near to death. But when it is barren and has no such offspring, or when it has lost them, then it becomes change in all its parts. So says Philo, who are we talking about? Are we talking about one entity or two? Says Philo, we're talking about one entity that's going to go to a transformation. What's the entity? The entity is the soul. And the soul should, should be happy and rejoice in its barrenness. What's the word that he's talking about? He's talking about the word barren, right? Barren means uh, uh, the soul, it should be happy when it loses all its vices, right? Sometimes the soul gets too much, too, too, everything is becoming too much. You eat too many pleasures, too many uh, appetites, too many folly and injustices, and you're doing too much with your soul. And you need to get to a point where you correct this and you go through a transformation. And then you become barren again. And, and, and Philo says, that's a good thing. We should rejoice in the barrenness of the soul because it needs rest. It needs, uh, you know, um, uh, you say in Hebrew, to, to uh, go back to zero. I don't know if you say that in English, but to do some of this moment of a restart or a reset, right? Uh, when you, you, you go back to the beginning. So says Philo, when should you rejoice? Not in the future, you should rejoice now. 
Why? Because now it's a good thing that you're, you're becoming barren. Now look at the word again, because that's going to be an important word for us later. He says, when the, the soul becomes like that, it becomes a pure virgin again, like a virgin. It, it becomes a uh, reboot. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. That's the word I was looking for. Reboot. Right. Uh, uh, so um, it becomes, says, says uh, Philo, she becomes, the soul becomes like a pure virgin again. Look at the, by the way, the concept of virginity. You can regain being a virgin again. It's not something lost and never to regain again. You can become a virgin again, according to Philo, not only him in the ancient time. So the, the soul can actually go back to being a slate, a clean slate, right? Something, something barren. That's a good thing. And having received the divine seed, its passions and brings back to life a new family. So what will happen at the end, this new soul, this cleaned up, the cleansed that the soul does, will eventually lead to a good soul, a better soul, a corrected soul, the family, admirable in their nature and great beauty and perfection, such as prudence. What's the family, family of good traits that the soul will have? Prudence, courage, temperament, justice, holiness, piety, and virtues and good dispositions, right? So at the end, cleaning your soul and getting rid of all of this and going through this transformation, uh, this is a good, right? This is a good thing will lead to a better soul and better results and, and it relaxes the softens the dark rigidity of care, said, said Philo, and it's uh, anticipation, gives forewarning and impending perfect good. So you should be happy now in your barrenness because it's going to lead to good. So this is what Philo says about this verse. But again, what's important for me is what's the word that he uh, uh, hangs his, his, his interpretation on. It's a word that, that, that talks about barrenness, right? So barrenness is a good thing and, and becoming, uh, becoming, you know, becoming barren is a good thing. So that's the word that Philo hangs its entire interpretation on one entity, but it starts with the barrenness of it, right? So bar being barren, no children, which is the vices, is the word he hangs the entire interpretation of the verse. So these were just two examples of ancient interpreters of the verse in the ancient time. Now, I want to talk a little bit, and this is, forgive me, this is going to be a little bit of, of, of logic, right? Which is, uh, uh, we're going to do a little bit of logic here and, 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 and uh, pretend we're a scientific trait, this humanity of ours. So let's say that uh, if the, the three adjectives that we talked about, and Akara uh, and Shomema, do not really perfectly align with each other, right? They're not exact parallels, the two, right? The, 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 the um, Akara and Shomema uh, uh, are not exact parallels, and Beula is not exactly an opposite of them. But if you find one and divide the whole thing based on it, you have to make the others mean parallels and opposites, right? So let's talk about it for a second and talk about what it does in Philo. Because Philo says the, the soul becomes a virgin again. So he, he reads barrenness as being a virgin again, which means that at the end, right? Because at the end, right, there'll be more children of the desolate, right? Shomema, than the, the children of the Beula. So Beula has to be the opposite of virgin. Now, Beula, also in modern Hebrew and in rabbinic literature, actually means someone who is has uh, uh, is no longer a virgin, someone who had intercourse, or someone who had a husband, or someone who actually is no longer a virgin. So this is the word Beula. This is what it means. 
And that leads to the fact that Shumimai and Akara are the same. But if Be'ula means someone who's not a virgin because it's the opposite of Betula, it also means that the word in the beginning, Akara, bearing, means a virgin, right? Because he talks about the soul, right? Remember, right? So if the barren woman and the desolate woman are the opposites of the Be'ula one, the non-virgin one. So that means that the desolate and the barren are a virgin, right? They're virgins because this is the people who, the soul, right? That It's barren, it's, but it, it means the opposite of someone who's not a virgin. So kind of hinted at it in the chat, and I think he's right that this is this is the crux to what we'll see in a second in other interpretations as well. So that that's just does something to keep in mind. Now I want to bring into the picture someone else who talked about this verse, and someone else who talked about this verse in in the first century CE is a guy named Paul. Paul was not a real um, um, uh, student of Jesus. He was actually uh, someone who, during the time of Jesus, testified himself that he was he persecuted Jesus and wasn't one of the first Christians. But afterwards, uh, he has a vision and of Jesus standing on the on the road and becomes Jesus' follower. And he's the most important, in fact, follower of Jesus from all his students because he becomes the the one who really goes out into the world and, and convinces non. Jews to follow the new laws of this, this new uh, Jesus movement. Now, the way he does it, he goes to all kinds of places like Rome, like Galatians, and she go, goes to all those places and establishes small Jewish Jesus followers communities. Right? He does that. And then after he's done, by the way, by the help of rich Roman women who help him, when he's done, he leaves, but he stays in touch with them via letters. And some of those letters are preserved in the New Testament. These are Paul's letters. And this is one of those letters. This is the letter to the Galatians. He writes to the community, dealing with their local problems. And this is what he says. And he talks about the verse in Isaiah. And look at how Paul uses this verse. And look what he says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. All of a sudden, we realize that the people he's talking to in Galatia, they want to keep the law. And they said to him, you know what? We want to be Jesus followers and we're Roman, but you know what? Why shouldn't we keep the law, the Torah? We want to do the commandment. And Paul is very upset with that. He says, you want to be uphold no one? Can you want to be under the law? No, you shouldn't. Why? Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So now Paul is going to explain why it's not a good idea to follow the law, to do the actual commandments for this non-Jewish Jesus followers. And he says, listen, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and other by the free woman. Who are those? Sarah and Hagar, right? So, so Abraham had two wives and he had two sons from them, one from Sarah, which was Isaac. And one from Hagar, which was Ishmael. Right? Now he says, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, in Greek, katastalka, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. Interestingly enough, he says, the two sons were not born in the same way. One was born according to the promise, 
and one was born according to the flesh. Let's talk a little bit about the promise. Isaac, right? He was born according to some kind of a promise from God. And by the flesh, I'm guessing the regular son. But what does that mean? Was the conception of the child different? Was the birth different? What did that mean to be born according to the flesh versus according to the promise? Right? So that's the question. What does he mean here? But he makes a difference between Ishmael and Isaac. And then he says, these things may be taken figuratively. This is the word in Greek that we all know from English, allegorically, right? And he said, figuratively, the women represent two covenants. Sarah and Hagal represent allegorically two covenants. He's trying to lead them into one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bear children who are to be slaves. This is Hagal. Hagal stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. You have two covenants. These two women, Sarai and Hagar, are two covenants. Let's start with the first one. This is Hagal. And her children are the city of Jerusalem. And she's in slavery. What does he mean by slavery? They're obligated to the Torah, to the commandments. And this is why they are the, the sons of the slave woman. Meaning, the children of Israel are Ishmael. Right, according to this metaphor, right? Because they're slaves to the covenant. But the Jerusalem that is above, right? This is the children of Sarah, is free. They're not the children of slaves. Meaning, our communities are likened to Isaac. We are not like the people who are obligated by the law. We are free. And she is our mother, Sarah. For it is written, be glad of barren women who bore no children. You know this verse. This is from Isaiah, right? Break free and cry loud who have no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than those who has had an husband or be'ula. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, you are the Isaacs, are children of the promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, the children of the Israelites who do the commandments, represent the son warning according to the spirit. Persecuted, sorry. The son, sorry, very important word. Persecuted, the son born according to the spirit. Remember that scene where Isaac, uh, Ishmael bothers Yitzchak? So Yitzchak is the one born by the spirit, by Sukkotus Pnuma, versus Katastalka, according to the flesh for the, um, it is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of free woman. This is a very interesting passage, extremely famous, very, very, very important, because it talks about the two covenants. And Paul says that we do not need to keep the commandments because we are Isaac. People who keep the commandments, they're Ishmael. Right? Talking about primacy, right? Who takes who, who's the real son of Abraham, right? We are. And we are free. We're free of this Torah. And you want to do it? We are not sons of slaves. This is, we are free of this covenant, says uh, Paul. Now, all well and done. Very interesting. But we are here for the verse. Remember, we're here to talk about interpretation of the verse in the ancient times. So how does Paul interpret the verse? According, as opposed to, let's say, Philo and Tangum Yonatan we just saw. How does Paul interpret the verse? So obviously, he talks about two different women. Right? It's not the same one. It's not the same entity. Two different entities, right? Sarah and Hagal. And he talks about 
um, to different covenants, right? And so it's not something that will happen over time, but this is two different entities that we should, you know, one is good and one is not good. One should be happy and one should not be happy, right? So, so who should be happy? The problem is that the barren one, the one that's supposed to be the bad one, is, is, is Sarah. Sarah was the one that was barren, right? So if we talk, if we take the verse, and you talk, gladden the barren one, this is Sarah, but she had Isaac. So how does this work exactly? So here, this is where I want to use the hint we got from Philo. Remember that we talked about um, being, uh, sorry, we're talking about this one. We talked about the fact that you could read in the ancient time, Be'ula, right, the one that had intercourse, as non-virgin. And according to that, the Betula, the, the, sorry, the barren one in the beginning, doesn't mean someone who didn't have any children because Sarah had a child. This is the whole thing. Sarah had a child. She had Isaac. She's not barren. But it doesn't mean barren in the sense never had any children. It means barren, meaning she is a virgin. Right? So with this woman is the virgin who had a child who never had children because she had a child being a virgin. You understand where I'm getting at it? Why would Paul use some kind of metaphor of someone who had children by being a virgin? Obviously, I think he's using here the word betula, uh, um, and he's referring to a tradition that talks about women having children by being a virgin. This is why the difference between the birth, right? Katastaka, someone according to the flesh and someone according to the promise. Isaac, according to Paul, was born not in a natural way. It was born leaving his mother a virgin. By the way, there's an interesting parallel in rabbinic literature that talks about Sarah having been able to give birth at such a late age that there's something weird about the birth of Sarah as well, right? So she was she she gave she she actually bore Isaac in not the natural way, but Paul, you know, take a swipe at that and and really explain it. And more interestingly than Paul himself, in later generations, the when the people read Paul. They obviously understood it about someone else who was famous from being born from a virgin woman. And we're talking about Jesus, right? And Mary. When people read this verse in ancient time, in continuation of Paul's reading of it, they read the verse, this verse. And they read the verse about rejoice, O barren woman. Also, this verse. Ah, where's my verse? This verse. This verse, finally got to it. When they heard the verse, they read rejoice, you barren woman. They read that rejoice, not barren, but virgin. So ancient interpreters took the opposite of Beula to mean, not to mean someone who doesn't have any children, barren, but someone who is a virgin who had children by staying a virgin. So rejoice, a virgin woman, is rejoice now because you are a virgin. We are rejoicing in your virginity, the rejoice of woman. So they read this verse. And again, using the proxy, what's the word that's being used to interpret the whole thing? The word be'ula, the word non-virgin at the end. And we're saying rejoice, a virgin, because at the end you'll have more children than the people who are not virgins. But rejoice, a virgin, meaning the church. Right, the early Christians. 
So we had a reading of the early Christians saying, our community, the sons of, uh, of, of Sarah, we are the sons of the Virgin, the Virgin Mary and, and, and Jesus. And we should rejoice for being virgins, the sons of a virgin, as opposed to the sons of the non-virgin, which are the Israelites. So this is how ancient Christian readers read this verse. So we did a long, I'm, I'm summarizing, I'm stopping, and did because this was very, very textual. I hope in, according to 9 p.m., you're still with me. And I'm going to summarize what we just did. We looked at the verse of Isaiah 54, and we looked at how ancient interpreters looked at it. And we saw that this is a complicated verse. We have to explain, is the woman rejoiced now or in the future? Is it two entities, one entity? What's the word according to which the entire verse should be interpreted? And we saw a few options, but we saw that both Philo and Paul read the verse at the, the word at the end, to mean a non-virgin, making the word akara in the beginning, not to mean a barren woman who had no children, but rather someone who was a virgin. So the desolate and the akara the, uh, and the barren one means a virgin like the soul in Philo, and like uh, um, Sarah in Paul. Having said all that, let's go now to my story with Bulia and the heretics. And now we the heretics question, right? This is where, we don't forget, we're here to solve the mystery. What's the story about, right? I'm actually using this, uh, 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 we're using um, a manuscript version, which is slightly better for my purposes. And uh, let's read it again, this time having in mind everything we've learned. So I'm reading the story again. Said that heretic to Boya. What did he say? Steve, it is said, Rejoice, O Akara, that had no children. And he says to her, he doesn't stop in the middle of the verse because he doesn't know he needs to read the rest. He stops because this is what he wants to do with the verse, like ancient readers did. Mishum de'akara roni, because she is a virgin, akara meaning virgin here, according to Paul and, 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 and Philo, because she is a virgin, she should rejoice. She's winning. The early, the early church is winning. The real children of Sarah, says the heretic, us. We're winning and we should rejoice. And this verse talks about us. We, this is the first, of, this is the verse about us, the children of the virgin woman. Jesus, that's it, says the heretic. So again, I'm using contemporaneous Christian reading of the verse to read it into the story and understand the words of the heretic. And the heretic says, this verse is a proof. We should rejoice. And what does she say to him? Reach at the end of the verse, you fool. And fool, again, don't forget, the first uh, two weeks ago, we learned that fool doesn't mean someone who's mentally impaired. She means theologically mistaken. She said to him, you are theologically mistaken. Not at all. You read all the way to the end. Means, first of all, that you're reading wrong the word akara. It doesn't mean virgin. It means one that doesn't have any children because it's all about the children having more children at the end and it's about having children and it's not about virginity said boy answer number one but under answer number two look how interesting that is. she says to him you know what 
let's focus on the word akara, bearing. And she says to him, you know what? Ron Knesset Israel, let Israel rejoice that she doesn't have children like you. Because you, our enemy, the Christian, will end up in Gehenom. You have you are theologically mistaken, you're theologically wrong, and we're happy. We're happy in being uh, 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 barren and barren in the sense of not having any children because we don't want children like you. You are theologically wrong. You are theologically in the other camp. You are, again, talking about insults and talking about this. She said to him, we don't want anything to do with you. We're happy. You're right. You know what? We should rejoice now and not in the future. You're right. We should be happy. Why should the, the Akara uh, rejoice? Not because she's a virgin. She should rejoice that she doesn't have children. Because children like you, we'd rather not have any children. So she goes again. The, the center of the argument here is the word akara, meaning talking about the the, the 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 amount of children or virginity. The two interpretations. The Christians read it as virginity, and Bulia answers back and says, "No, no, no. This is all about the number of children and saying I don't want to be a parent to someone like you. You are theologically mistaken, and I don't want to. I know I I don't have anything to do with you." What I basically tried to do in this uh, uh, in this class, and we're, we're going to leave some time for questions as we usually do. I tried to say, and let me let me stop and, and share. I tried to say that this is again one of those stories that, if read on its own without understanding the background, the Christian contemporary background, seems like a stupid story, right? Someone comes in, asks. A question about a verse stops in the middle, and then a rabbinic figure says, "New region till the end." And what's what's the point? The idea, basically, uh, as they do in this story, the one we did last week, and in the other stories that I cover in my book, I try to say it's not stupid at all. It's just that it looks like that because we don't understand the background. And once you understand the background of how this verse was read in ancient times, and especially how it was read in ancient Christian communities, most famously in Paul but not just follow as well. And understanding the background of the virginity story and what does it mean to say that Akara means a virgin and the, the, the weight of this word in the ancient Christian communities. And when a heretic comes in and says, rejoice children of the virgin woman, and Boya gets very, very upset about this. It's because whoever composed this story wants to say, we don't read the story this way. We know that's a contemporaneous Christian claim. Whoever writes the story knows enough about Christianity to know that this is what they're saying when they're reading this verse. This is an attempt of the rabbis to deal with a contemporaneous Christian argument. And they're saying, we know that you're saying that about this verse. And we know why you're saying that. We know that this is the claim. The question of the heretic is not a stupid one. It's a good one. It's a contemporary one that we can find in Christian art. It's a, it's a valid story. This is why it was composed. This is why it was preserved in the Talmud. It's a valid Christian reading of the verse. And whoever writes this knows. Just in general, that's my, my view about rabbinic literature. Never underestimate what they know and why they write it this way, right? If it looks stupid, it's probably the problem is with us and not with the story. So they're composing a story that really, really represents a Christian view. But also a, a rabbinic answer, right? We don't accept that. We don't think that this is how you should read the verse. We should think we, should, we think you should read the verse not about a virgin, but someone who's barren, who doesn't have any children. And you know what? We're happy to not have children like you. 
the, the, the tone of the argument is extremely polemical because this is the heart of it, right? Who, who's the children of Sarah and who's the children of Hagan, right? That's the, that's the heart of it, of the argument of the Jewish-Christian polemics. Who God loves more? Who is the real children of God? And this is a rabbinic answer put in the mouth of Buya. Why Buya? I think it makes sense to put the woman figure on the question of the barren woman or the, the woman who, who had children or doesn't have children in later tradition actually talks about children, the children of Buya. But, but, but again, the woman talking about the, the rejoicement of the, of the woman, and I think it's not a coincidence to put in the mouth of, of, the, of the one female character that we have that's learning. And last words. I'm a historian, and this is a good way to, to cut, finish like our three, three lecture series. I'm a historian. I'm interested in the question of how much did the Jews and the rabbis know about each other? And I think from the two stories that we read together, I think we can actually start saying that we just begun to look at the Talmud using, asking that question. This is new. We've been doing that for only a few years. And I think we've, we're getting slowly to the point where we understand that they knew quite a lot about Christian communities. We don't know how much and we don't know to what level. This will take a few more years to figure out. We need more examples and more evidence, but we are aware from stories like that that they did know quite a lot about rabbinic, about Christian story, about Christian interpretation of their time. And as a historian, that makes me very happy because that means that the Talmud has a lot to offer us when we're looking at Jewish Christian interpretation, and we should look to the to the Talmud in order to ask that question. The, the Talmud has a lot to offer us. It's not obvious. It's not clear. You need to learn contemporary Christian interpretation in order to understand that. But once we do, look how much it has to offer us and how exciting that is to learn this about the Talmud and understand better what it was trying to do when it was composed and in what atmosphere, in what historical context it was you know, composed and what it tells us about Jews and Christians in the ancient world. And here I'm done. And it leaves a few more uh, minutes for questions if anyone wants to ask. And you can put it either in the chat or just Ask away. I'm happy to hear questions. Anyone? Yael, go ahead. Shalom to So if I follow you correctly, are you saying that the that Paul was saying that Bnei Israel are children of Ishmael? Yep, in the metaphorical sense. Oh, but not not historically. No, this is he said this is allegorical interpreting. I see. Oh, actually so this uses is, the word allegorical. But but I I don't really follow because okay I understand I mean I I just don't really follow why he would say that he would why he would use the names he could say it's as though there were I mean if he would say he does he says as though. He said, he said, he says allegorically, he actually uses the word allegorically in Greek, and he says, this is, this is what I'm trying to say. Allegorically, we have two kinds of covenants. One that came from the free woman and one that came from the slave woman, right? And he says, we are, we don't want to be slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to the commandments of the Torah. I'm trying to create a different kind of Judaism where you are not slaves to this kind of stuff. So he says, ah, ah, we're choosing to be the sons of Sarah. But again, this is really interesting because these chooses and we can't ignore, especially in the later reception of Paul. It's interesting to see what Paul meant himself because he doesn't mention Jesus, but the later reception of Paul definitely reads this as saying, Isaac is a prefiguration of Jesus. He was born out of a 
very aged woman. Maybe he wasn't born according to the promise. There's something right, just like Jesus, right? So this is this we we belong in that camp, and that camp is the free woman. She's not a slave, and that that's the allegorical interpretation of a covenant that doesn't have laws that makes us all slaves. That's what he's trying to do to his community. Well, We're I, doing a little bit of early Christianity here. Well, that's good. I mean, that's fine. But personally, I agree. I think it makes us understand better the Talmud. Personally, I feel that the law of the law of the Torah leads to freedom, and that the chaos that, that comes from not having the guidance of uh, a din, the law, is um, that's that's the restriction in itself. What you're that's just what saying mean. actually is found in rabbinic literature, and some scholars, such as Olbach, think that some of the statements that's found in rabbinic literature about Torah being so. so actually following the Torah is not being a slave and just being free. That's actually a quote from the rabbis. So some scholars have offered, uh, one of them that says, that's actually an anti-Christian polemic. We're saying, you're saying the Torah is slavery? We're saying, no, Torah is freedom and not slavery. So this is an actual Jewish-Christian polemic about this. So what we, the, the argument you're saying, the rabbis were making it too. So they were aware of that claim and trying to make the opposite. So that's a good one. Emily. It's so nice to see you. I can't hear you. You're muted. Is there a way to date this um, this this story? Such <laughs> a at what point in the process of the Talmud did this come? You know, and there are so many questions that that connects to for me. Like, are all are all the brewerious stories? Sort of one, you know, developed at one point in the Talmudic. This is this is such a wonderful question, and the the answer to both is I don't know the answer to both, and I'll explain by why are they good questions. So first of all, when did Christian tradition enter the Babylonian Talmud? Is a really good one, and especially I'm in trouble when it goes to New Testament tradition because the New Testament tradition are from the first century CE. So the Talmud was reacted in the sixth century could have known them at any point. So how do I know when to date them? That's a really good question. I have some hints, the fact that they're not found in Palestinian sources, but they're found in the Babylonian Talmud, kind of suggests that they're in the period after the reduction of the Yerushalmi in the fourth century. And so towards the last 150 years, which also makes sense because Christianity becomes much more prevalent post Nikea in the fourth century. So that kind of like, that's a hint, but it's a guess. Who knows? Maybe these are like earlier traditions than that. Who knows? The cool stuff is sometimes in my book, and especially in the third chapter, I actually have a, a st story where I can actually show that the Christian tradition that's being known by the rabbis could not have appeared before a certain date. And that's not a New Testament tradition. So for example, in the third chapter, I have a story where they talk about whatever, something theological discussion about the Holy Spirit that only started being discussed in the Christian church in the fourth and fifth century. And that's an example that I love because all of a sudden I can say, they could not have known this before that time period. We have so few examples like that, but this is a really, really cool example, which maybe also suggests that the others also come from that time period. At least I can say that about a certain tradition that I can date in time. But that's a complicated question. And the truth is we haven't mapped we just begun to find all those examples and we haven't mapped all that's in the Talmud to, to answer that, you know, but we, we're starting to accumulate information. So the, the, the short answer is, I don't know, but it's a good, good question. 
and about the corpus of stories, if we find uh, stories that are, you, you asked about the Vulia stories, but I'll, let me ask you a harder question about the Minim stories. Right. Are all Minim stories from the same time period? Because if they are, that's nice, because if I can prove one dating to one of them, so the all corpus, and I'm dating the whole, or the truth is, we don't know. And it looks like sometimes, even if originally they came from the same corpus, could have been, the fact that they're situated in different tractates and then went through another set of editing might have like led them to them looking differently and being redacted differently. It's all super complicated and has to do with, you know, a lot of theories about, you know, lower and, and higher criticism. Sometimes we can we can actually um, see and compare and say, oh, this looks earlier than this tradition about Vuya because blah, 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 or something. So sometimes we can have local examples, but it's all extremely complicated because it looks like the Talmud was redacted in a lot of phases. So maybe originally they were part of one corpus, and I think there's a good case to say that in some cases. Um, I don't know, Ifa Holmi stories that I just finished writing an article about is another one that there's five stories about this Persian queen mother, which I think originally came from the same corpus, but then got spread out in the Talmud and got, you know, re-redacted all around. Complicated. I guess Super I mean, complicated. I, the reason I asked the Barbary is like, I, I wonder, I guess it raised, this story raised for me the question of, it doesn't sound so similar to, in some ways it does, but in some ways it doesn't sound so similar to the other Berea stories. So why did, you know, I'm imagining the rabbis pulling Berea out of a hat and saying, huh, we're gonna use- This is the one we're gonna use. I actually agree with you. I have, uh, I'll give you another example and then we'll finish and see that uh, uh, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, um, looked at. Uh, I see that, uh, um, for example, Elijah's stories, Talmud, and there's a very interesting book that collects all the Elijah stories. They're all like about Elijah being this liminal character that can tell us what happens. Uh, he comes in back and forth and can tell us what happens with God, right? There's all of a sudden there's one story that I found a Christian parallel to where Elijah doesn't do that. In the Rashmi story in the cave, he comes in. I know you learned that story with me five years ago. He goes into a cave. <laughs> really? Okay, so he goes into a cave. And he stands out of the, and he doesn't do that. He says something else, something about the, the time period that he lives in. It doesn't tell us what happened to God. And that's like unique in the Elijah stories. So in this case, I agree with you. They pulled Elijah out and put him in for a different reason because he's like a monk character or whatever, and use him differently than the rest of the corpus, which kind of strengthens your point that this story is a later one. I agree about Bolia too. That's my hunch too. I think they pulled Bolia out and used it because she's a woman and we needed a woman for this verse about a woman. Which makes also sense because the Christian tradition, I think, tend to be later, so they pulled her out. But this is all conjecture, and I, I, I will deny saying that ever because I don't know for sure. <laughs> I think this is a good time to stop and say thank you for all of you who joined me for the last three weeks, and thank you, Drisha, for the warm hospitality. It's always fun to come and teach here, uh, whether virtually or physically. And I wish you all a very good year, the rest of the year, and. and Good night, Bill. I love to. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Varasha Sigal. And again, you know, everyone here for participating in our learning community. Um, and okay, you missed the first two. That's fine. We have recordings. Um, God willing, they'll go out in our pre email that we send out. So you can just click through 
anything that you missed, and if if you don't want to miss a thing that's coming up, um, we do have five classes tomorrow, um, some with more known dating. Uh, we do have one class on contemporary Christian-Jewish relations, so we, we know all those dates. Well, Dr. Simkovich knows all those dates, and she's always happy to share things with us, um, and uh, it's been a very lovely class so far. Um, much like this one. Um, so I look forward to seeing uh, all of you again soon, learning with you all again soon. Um, and good night. Be well. Good night. Thank you. Emily, say hi to Sarah for me. Well. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.